Welcome to Inside West Point, Ideas That Impact. I'm Brigadier General Shane Reeves, the Dean of the United States Military Academy at West Point. Through a series of discussions, we will show you a different side of West Point, where we will make even our most complex initiatives accessible to broad audiences and give you an inside view to our cross-disciplinary work, which is being applied throughout the world. This episode of Inside West Point features the impactful work being done by Lieutenant Colonel Rory McGovern. Lieutenant Colonel McGovern is an academy professor in the Department of History at West Point, where he has served since 2020 and where he currently leads the American History Division. Rory commissioned from Boston College in 2005 as a field artillery officer. Before being assigned to West Point, Lieutenant Colonel McGovern held a variety of assignments in the 1st Cavalry Division and 3rd Infantry Division, including two deployments to Baghdad, Iraq. He also served as the Deputy G-5 for 10th Army Air and Missile Defense Command in Kaiserslautern, Germany. Rory holds a BA from Boston College and earned an MA and PhD from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Welcome, Rory, to the podcast. Thank you, sir. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, we're glad to have you. I'm looking forward to the, today's conversation, specifically looking at some of the work you're doing on the Black History Project at West Point. And what got you started working on this particular project? It was just a pronounced gap in the historical literature on Black experience in the Army and, and at West Point generally. I stumbled upon it almost by accident while I was in grad school. I focused my dissertation research on George Gothels, who entered the Army, entered West Point in 1876, graduated in 1880, and he ended up serving a variety of engineer assignments throughout a period of great change in the Army, structurally and culturally. And in tracing his career, I came upon an episode in his career where he was here. He was a, an assistant professor of civil, and, and of civil engineering. And he was one of the cadets that he was teaching was Charles Young, who would, yeah. who would go on to become the third black graduate in West Point's history. And Charles Young failed the final examinations, went before the academic board, was, was about to get dismissed. And then Captain Gothels interceded and said, hey, I, I'm leaving in August. Don't dismiss him. He's close. Let me work with him for the next couple months. Reexamine him in August. And he did. And they established a good and effective working relationship. Gothels moves on to his engineering commands. Charles Young passed the re-examination in August and graduated. And it was in the whole arc of Gothels' career, it was a brief moment. But as with any historical project, that one strand, that one thread, revealed for me a number of different threads that could be, could be worth pulling on. Can you talk uh, just a little bit about Charles Young? Yes, sir. So Charles Young, as, as I said, he was the third black graduate at West Point. He, and from the period from 1870 through 1889, there were about 27 prospective African-American cadets nominated, 12 admitted, and three graduated. So we have Henry O. Flipper in 77, John Hanks Alexander in 1887, and Charles Young in 1889. Charles Young was on the back end of this initial wave of integration at, at West Point. He came from Ohio. He was very well prepared to be here, but he faced the same challenges that every black cadet who was here in the Reconstruction and post-Reconstruction era faced. They were often alone. They had 
one or two fellow African-American cadets there at any given time. Most of their fellow cadets stayed for either six months or a year before being dismissed. Only three made it through. And uh, Charles Young had to, he had a tough time. He, he struggled with the isolation. The Corps cadets with African-American cadets at the time would, would silence them, which means that they would refuse to speak or interact with them unless in the course of their, their duties, their cadet leadership duties compelled them to, which made for a tough time, especially because common practice here was as it is today, the core curriculum is challenging and it's going to expose you to many different subjects and no one cadet is going to be naturally inclined to all of them. So cadets would lean on each other and to, they called it boning up. Lean on, if, if I'm not good at math and I'm in math class, I'm going to lean on a talented friend to help me get at least passively good at math. Sure. And we often say that's cooperate and graduate, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yes, sir. So Charles Young, as with his, his fellow black cadets at the time, did not have that opportunity. So he had to struggle through more or less on his own. He did run into some academic issues. He was turned back a year, but he graduated in 1889. And he went on to, his was a career of firsts, because when you think about it, there were, his predecessors were, were Henry O. Flipper, who graduated in 1877, and was dismissed from the army in 1882. John Hanks Alexander graduated in 1887, but he dies, unfortunately, early. He has a heart condition. So by the time Charles Young has been in the army for five years, everything he does from that point forward is the first time a black officer has done that. So his career trajectory was a series of first from the rank of captain forward. He served time with the tours of duty with the 9th and 10th Cavalry Regiments, the famous Buffalo Soldier Cavalry Regiments. Officer development at the time was highly experiential, and the Army was hesitant and refused to put black officers in a position where they would command white troops. So knowing that to meet an experiential officer development, you couldn't just keep an officer in the line at all times. What they would do with Charles Young is he'd complete a tour of duty on the line, and then he'd go be a professor of tactics and military science at a historically black college. Mm -hmm. He spent a lot of time at, at Wilberforce University specifically as a professor of military science and tactics. He'd do some time there. Then he'd go back and go back and, and complete more time on the line. So we flash, he's doing very well, earning lots of accolades. He's falling into very influential circles. Theodore Roosevelt knows his name. W.E.B. Du Bois is, is a personal friend of his. And he's on a trajectory upward. He does make colonel. And World War One, World War One, of course, breaks out in 1914, but the United States gets on a path to intervention in 1917. And the Army decides to medically retire Colonel Young. The official finding was that on, on a review of his medical file, they found a heart issue and, and decided to medically retire him. But what seems more likely is that as the Army looked out at its, its current roster of colonels, knowing that wartime expansion would make most of them generals, they did not want to make Charles Young a general. So 
Charles Young, of course, appeals a decision, and to demonstrate his fitness, he gets on a horse at Fort Riley, Kansas, and rides to Washington, D.C. Yeah. And ultimately, the Army does consider his appeal. He is brought back onto active duty in 1918, and Charles Young closes out his career as a military attache in, in Liberia. He takes over the attache mission in Liberia. He ultimately dies in Liberia in the in the early 20s. Now, Charles Young, you said graduated in 1889. Yes, sir. And the next African-American graduate isn't isn't until 1936. Is that right? Benjamin O. Davis Jr.? Correct. Is that, do I have that right? Yes, sir. So you have this 47-year gap. Mm-hmm. And were there other African-American cadets during that time period? Or was it, I mean, this is really like when the Jim Crow era really descends on the United States, right? Yes, sir. It absolutely, it absolutely does. There were a small handful of African-American cadets in their intervening years, but much like nine of the 12 during the greater reconstruction period, they lasted six months to a year before, before being dismissed. And it's a, it's a small handful, single digits. There were two that I know of who are here in the World War I years, very, very briefly. And on a trail, there might've been another two in the twenties, but I need, I need to follow up. But the impetus to to send African-American cadets to West Point in the first place largely grew out of Reconstruction era right. political realities. And what we see is that the, the way that takes shape is that from 1870 to 77, almost all of your nominated black cadets are coming from the South and they're coming from radical Republican congressmen and senators in the South. However, as Reconstruction, as emphasis on Reconstruction fades, what happens on the back half of that first period of integration is that the center of gravity for nominating black cadets shifts to northern states, particularly Ohio, Ohio and New York. And as we get into the 1890s and the Jim Crow era is really taking hold, even the northern impetus to nominate black cadets is starting to fall by the wayside. As we get into the 19-teens, it, it hits its absolute nadir. This is the era where President Wilson is resegregating the, the federal government, and that attitude persists into the 1920s. An interesting note, though, is you see here that the community of African-American connections to West Point, African-American graduates of West Point, and African-American officers in the Army is so vanishingly small that they're all connected. Mm. So Charles Young, while he was in the, serving in the Buffalo Soldier regiments, mentored then Sergeant Benjamin Davis Sr., mentored him, prodded him to, to pursue OCS, their version of OCS, pursue a commission successfully, and did have continued contact with the Davis family after Benjamin O. Davis Jr. was born. There is a direct link from Charles Young to Benjamin O. Davis, even, even at the span of half a century. So. Yeah. So you've been really busy over the last few years researching a number of different people and topics. And I mean, it's it's interesting to hear you able to spin off just kind of the, you know, your, your thoughts on all these different individuals. Can you just tell me about your work in general on the Black History Project at West Point and how is it including cadets? Yes, sir. So when I arrived back in, in 2020 and took over the American division, 
Colonel Yoshitani and, and Colonel Gibby briefed me that a grad, Walt Bachman, had done some work digging into Army officers' pay slips and, and trying to tease out connections to the institution of slavery, and that we had been donated all of the pay slips that he found, or right. digital copies of them, an archive of them, and that we had agreed to set up a project of some kind around it. So sat down with a civilian professor that we had at the time, Professor Alara Hooten, who has, who has since moved on to another university, and two of our junior rotators, Major Louisa Kobrick, Major Matt Campbell. And we put together uh, an idea for a long-ranging Black History Project that accepted that archive as an element, but was a little more ambitious looking at how we can get cadets and faculty involved in researching more and filling in more of the gaps in the black military experience generally, and to some extent, the, the, the black experience of West Point specifically. And so we mapped out a campaign plan that works along three lines of effort over 10 years, but the campaign plan is really not meant to dictate action as much as frame what actions we want to take advantage of when when they arise. And so as we moved out of that year, a number of opportunities started to fall into place. So the first thing that we we got going on was a faculty research project on James Webster Smith, who was the first black cadet admitted to West Point. Hmm. What year was he admitted? He was admitted in 1870, sir. Okay. So, and he stayed until 1874. Wow. He was dismissed after failing natural and experimental philosophy in 19th century version of a physics class in 1874. And so we had seen in the literature before that they're just, when Smith shows up, it just echoes these two interpretations that came up in the 1960s that tried to portray Smith as the Malcolm X to Henry O. Flipper's Martin Luther King. In the 1960s, that metaphor made, made sense to many readers, and it was included in two different histories of West Point that are very influential and has just been parroted over time. But as we pulled the threads, we discovered there's a lot more to the story. And in fact, it seems that Smith's staying power shifted conditions so that they would allow at least the possibility for later arriving black cadets to graduate. And that was a really, really illuminating research project. It has turned into an article that was accepted by the Journal for Military History, and it will run in either October or January, October this year, January next year. But the process of conducting that research allowed us to bring that research into our classes and organize a faculty talk where some of our majors were there, where we presented this as the type of project that we can conduct inside the Black History Projects and we're looking for cadet involvement. And so we solicited for cadet ideas what they would like to do. And what we got was kind of a series of, of proposals where there's a group of cadets that want to work on episodes of Black history in West Point's history and develop a walking tour. And there's a group of cadets that's working on that right now with Major Charlotte Stutz and Major Brian Sears. Then there were another couple cadets that were interested in producing some sort of an exhibit, some sort of an exhibit that can reach a public audience and educate the West Point community about black history at West Point. 
So that led to a meeting with Chris Barth in the library and a connection with, with Lisa Gomez in the library. And we put our heads together and, and decided to stand up a small team of two cadets, Caroline Robinson and Delorvier Wilson, working with me and Lisa Gomez to set up an exhibit in the library. And we ranged broadly. This was a real team effort. We had help coming in from all over the West Point community. And we were able to put on a really impactful exhibit up in the library for two months, February and March, and have since digitized it. So it's available to the public through the through the USMA Library website in, indefinitely. Yeah, and I'll tell you, I'd recommend anyone look at it. It, it, it was a really amazing exhibit. And so it's nice to know it's been digitized and you can you can access it or anyone can access it. What was the most exciting thing you've uncovered in all this research? Oh, that's a great question because you always find things that the archives surprise you. And we tend to think of the past as a different world. But when you're in the archives, you find that, you know, 18 to 24 year olds are the same in, yeah. in any era. So when we think of, so I think, but so I. So Charles Young was scrolling Instagram? <laughs> <laughs> not not uh. quite. But you do think of, when we think of, say, 19th century West Point, we think of this parade of generals that we know of. And they all, we think of these very stern looking black and white photographs. And we assume that that's what they were. We assume this was a place of, just iron tight discipline that produces the, you know, General Grant who leads us through the Civil War. And in many cases, when you're in the archives, you, you find sometimes kind of funny breaches of discipline, as in when, in credit to Major Justine Meberg, who stumbled upon this, was a, a kind of hilarious court martial that went on when a group of cadets in the 1840s, in the 1830s, stole Major Delafield's ducks and had a duck bake in the barracks. <laughs> and two more egregious breaches of discipline, one that I, I, I encountered in the archives, others have found it too, but I, I encountered it in the archives where in 1870, the, the fall semester 1870, there were these three plebes who... When it came time for evening recall or the evening report, two of them had blown post and their roommate, they were living in a room of three, had kind of arranged their beds so it looked like it, they were in there and he reported them present. And this became known in the Corps and the firsties, the first class, the class of 1871, had a meeting and decided that they were going to take it upon themselves to expel the plebes. So they went to their rooms, said, you can't stay here anymore. Come with us. We'll give you time to pack. They walked them out the, up the road to the back gate, which is basically up behind by Fort Putnam and out the back gate, got them to the gate, handed them a pile of money and said, this will sustain you until you can get to relatives. And off they went. Meanwhile, the post the next morning when they realized there are three cadets that are missing. And of course, since the cadets had, the Corps of Cadets had effectively expelled them, everybody said, I don't know where they are. They search wider and wider, eventually find these three, these three cadets in, in Poughkeepsie. 
bring them all back. It becomes a national national headline story that bring them all back. Now, finally, they get there and the commandant is Emery Upton, who he gets the three plebes back and he says, okay, welcome back. I'm sorry that happened under the circumstances. I would strongly suggest that you resign immediately. <laughs> yeah. And, and they did. It was, it was just one of the wilder stories. I've yeah, there's a lot of unbelievable things that, you know, are figuratively buried in the archives. Mm-hmm. You'll find when you go look at, say, as you mentioned, President Grant, he'll have little doodlings in, in his textbooks, you know, or Whistler will have some whimsical drawings in his book. So, yeah, I mean, the, there's a lot of things you can uncover in the archives that I don't know a lot of people know about, but it'd be quite interesting. Mm-hmm. Can, can you tell me about the current book you're working on with the West Point Press? Yes, sir. So that is a product of momentum generated from the exhibit, which we mentioned earlier. So West Point Press offers an excellent venue to, to put out projects like this. What we're going to do, it is a interdisciplinary team of faculty and cadets. So the full team, of course, I, I am involved, but also Dr. Tony McGowan over in, over in the English department, Colonel Gibby in the history department will help out as well. And then we're bringing on cadet Carolyn Robinson, who's a history major who helped out with the exhibit, and cadet Gabriella Sorrentino, who's a double major, history and philosophy. And we're going to produce an annotated edition of Henry O. Flipper's memoir of his, his cadet years at West Point. So annotated memoirs are excellent tools for modern readers. When you look at Flipper's memoir, it was published in 1878. So there are things that Flipper, there are turns of a phrase or expressions, idioms that Flipper uses that modern readers will no longer recognize. There are, well, I I should back up. I should say that an annotated memoir, the reason why you do an annotated memoir is, is twofold. It will help with understanding and it will help with interpretation in ways that will be, that modern readers would miss. So as I said, it helps with, now arcane turns of a phrase, we can, we can illustrate that. If there's a mention of a figure that Flipper does not explain because an audience in 1878 would know exactly who that person is, but an audience in 2023 wouldn't, we can explain that. But more importantly, it helps readers interpret the work. Tony McGowan from the English department is, will be helping us out specifically because Flipper's memoir is one of the earliest examples of an auto autobiography of a black man in American literature. There were others. There were others, of course. Many of them did not find wide readership until later, though. So this was one of the first ones to find wide readership, and he'll be able to interpret the the literary quality of that and speak to its reception and, the, and its importance. There's also historical interpretation. It's easy when you read Flipper's memoir to take everything at surface at surface value, which as a historian, I would argue that you can't because context matters. Mm-hmm. And when Flipper wrote this, he published it in 1878. So it's published the year after he left West Point. And to Flipper's mind, he doesn't know that he's going to be dismissed from the army in 1882. He believes he's a second lieutenant with a full career ahead of him. And West Point at that time, this is this is as the schools at Fort Leavenworth are just getting their footing. This is before the Army War College exists. It is the foundational point for every regular 
almost every regular officer in the army. It's their starting point. It is the living, breathing, beating heart of the army. Say one thing bad about West Point and your career is over. So Flipper tells us some powerful testimony that we can take. It gives us powerful testimony that we can take at face value. And there are some things that are more left between the lines and an annotated edition can point to where that is happening. Yeah, I think it's going to be an incredible contribution to the literature, and I think it's going to offer something quite unique. Henry O. Flipper is, is clearly of prominence to to the West Point community and to West Point at large, but I think there's potential that an annotated bibliography can make him an, a national figure, which I think he really is, but he's oftentimes not known as a national figure. So, so let me just transition a bit. Several of the projects you mentioned seem to revolve around individuals. Many historians favor more collective studies. What advantages do you see in historical analysis that are more biographical in nature? It reaches, in my opinion, it can more easily each reach a wider audience. When we think about our mission here to educate, train, and inspire, I can educate more easily if my approach also inspires. Mm-hmm. And there's something inspirational in deeply personal stories, something very inspirational. We were just talking about Flipper. Flipper had a hard time while he was here, but his perseverance is inspirational and we we can learn something from that. And we should. And when we talk about James Webster Smith, his story, his perseverance is out of this world. It ultimately has a tragic end, but the story of his person, of his perseverance up to the tragic end is deeply inspirational. So if we can give our readers, give our students subjects that inspire them and educate at the same time, then they are going to learn the the lessons that I'm trying to, that we're trying to impart in them are more accessible, more digestible. Also, it's to me, it, there's just something deeply fascinated in people's stories. I mentioned my dissertation and book projects. That's it's about George Gothels, but it's not about George Gothels. It's about how and why the army changed in this great period of transformation from the Reconstruction era to the post-war years and between the interwar years between World War One and World War Two. But I could present that story through congressional reports, through chiefs of staff of the army, through secretaries of, the, of war, secretaries of the army later. We could present that through after action reports, or we could take this one officer's career and life as a vehicle and show him working his way through the institution and in his experience of working his way through the institution and what he and his friends thought and wrote about it and the experiences that they had as they're working their way through illustrate exactly what the army's doing, how it's changing, to what extent it's not changing, and in a way that I think is engaging and relatable. And also for me, my sense of when most people touch history, think about history, They look at it through their own lens, and they relate it to their own lives. Presenting subjects that are people makes the history that much more relatable, that much more accessible. Presenting it as 
an inanimate thing. You know, the story of an institution versus the story of a person in which you can you can weave the story of the institution, then people can see themselves in it and understand themselves a little better, understand their condition, the condition around them better, and come to a deeper understanding of the institution and our past because it's so personal. It seems like it's more real. And more yeah, and I think and I think that that makes sense, right? The the study of the human condition and those experiences are allow people, as you stated, to touch history, but it also allows for inspiration at the individual level, but also tells the history of the institution, as you point out, weave throughout. And that's so important for us with our job is to train, educate, and inspire with that emphasis on inspire cadets. And I think that's I think being able to to look at the human experience in historical context allows for that inspiration, which leads into a, a broader question. Why, why is history, the study of history important for an army officer? Well, I know I'm very biased on this, but yeah. Uh, yeah. I think it's, sir, I, th- I think it's, it's massively important. Our, our cadets, when they leave here, they'll go into the PME system and, and especially when you say PME system. What do you mean? The uh, professional military education system are sure. the schools that they will encounter at, at every rank from lieutenant through colonel. They will hear over and over again this concept of historical mindedness. And our professional military education system emphasizes historical mindedness because it is immediately relatable to, to what we need officers to do. It's all about critical thinking, specifically about context. I am familiar with, and in some circumstances, a great fan of Occam's razor. The the simplest solution is always the best. But the danger of Occam's razor is that oftentimes the simplest solution that presents itself is a solution to a misdiagnosed problem. And what the discipline of history allows us to do is to think in a disciplined and multifaceted manner about problems so that we can take the time to think about all the factors that, all the conditions, the broader context of any given problem. How did we get to this point? How did we arrive at at this problem? What's influencing the problem? What's driving it? What's influencing the various ways that we as an army, as a nation can approach the problem? What's, what are the limitations that our context imposes upon us that could limit our ability to act and solve the problem. So in that way, somebody who thinks historically, when they come upon a problem, as long as time allows, they don't, you don't just drive right into it. You can do a cloverleaf recon around it to find there is the leverage point. There's the leverage point that I, that I, if I apply pressure to this leverage point, that is the best way to solve this problem. When I, I was a field artillery officer in between, while I was here as a rotational faculty member, I transitioned into a functional area 59 army strategist. And in my role as, as deputy G5, I acted as the chief of plans for the theater army air and missile defense headquarters in Europe and Israel. Lots of work with NATO, lots of work on high level plans and I used the skills that I developed as a historian, the ability to ask the right questions to get at the essence of the problem to, in order to frame the right approach to it. I use that on a, on a daily, daily basis. I, I think it's, it's an essential 
essential piece of, a, of an army officer's toolkit. And what, I, what I'm hearing you say, and I think this is, should be encouraging, is that what we're really doing is through history, we're helping prepare our, our graduates to be able to successfully navigate all those complexities and uncertainties of the, of the modern and future battle space or the entire national security apparatus. And I couldn't agree more, but let me ask you what, it's not simply you know, knocking down the 50 meter target. It's not just tactical thinking. What's the connection between the study of history and creating strategic thinkers in our senior army leadership? Say, for example, you have a cadet today, 30, 35 years from now, they may be, you know, division commander, corps commander, or perhaps chief staff of the army. How do you see studying history now translating into creating the strategic thinkers that we need to, to be successful? Mm-hmm. Studying history now provides people the tools that they need to become strategic thinkers. It, above all, it it trains them to ask the right questions and thoroughly, thoroughly investigate any problem. As we move from the tactical level to the to the operational and then from operational to strategic level, the problems get just more and more complex, more and more difficult to navigate. We call them wicked problems. Okay. Because they're they are these problems that don't have they don't fit naturally into any one staff section. They don't have playbooks. But a student of history, on the one hand, will have encountered enough, will have studied the human condition and our past closely enough that they will know that there's no problem that's a hundred percent new under the sun. And while history will not give them a step action drill that say, okay, this worked for Grant, do exactly what what Grant did. They will see myriad examples of how people have approached similar problems, and it may reveal ways that they can adjust their own approach, options that they can take, factors that they must take into consideration. Now, moving off of that more tangible set to the skills, the skills that it gives them, when we think of what we need strategic leaders to do, the qualities that strategic leaders have. Strategic leaders have to think deeply. They have to exercise appropriate levels of patience. They have to be, to some extent, inherently skeptical and probe what seems like the best solution until they're certain that it is. And strategic leaders need to understand the significance and the importance of chance, contingency, and and human agency. Hmm. And in doing so, that will allow them to leverage the the skills, talents, and motivations of everybody on their team as they're thinking through these wicked problems. And they're also going to be thinking beyond the problem, thinking in depth, where that's where contingency matters. They understand that if we interject our own action, the system itself is an agent and it will react in sometimes unpredictable ways and we can anticipate them. So how would you respond to those who would say with the proliferation of technology, especially like artificial intelligence, chat GPT, or let's say even more rudimentary Wikipedia, right? I can access knowledge so quickly now that the, the study of history seems as if it's a bit unnecessary. I mean, if I really want to find something that is that is common or similar or a situation that maybe has played out in the past, I can find that. I don't really know if I need to be studying in-depth history when there's access to, to knowledge right at the tip of my fingertips. What's How would you respond? 
there's there's a difference between facts and knowledge and understanding. Above all, the most essential characteristic of a strategic leader is the ability to be a critical thinker. Chat GPT can, can quickly reach back and present a historical fact, but it cannot give us nuanced analysis. It can't. Right now, we are not at that point. We need the, the human mind, the trained human mind that is capable of deep critical thought and analysis is the strategic leader that we need. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more, especially on that emphasis on critical thinking and the, the misunderstanding that access to knowledge means that you have an understanding. And our job is to ensure that there isn't an atrophy of those critical thinking skills that create understanding, which again, gets into your point of strategic thinking and really the, the advantage of the United States military is our officers to be able to think through a problem when you can't do that simply by accessing knowledge. Okay, so let me just ask you a few different questions. You didn't go to West Point, and one of the things I like to always, in this podcast, I highlight our, our incredible faculty and the, the breadth of our faculty. We obviously have civilian faculty, we have permanent military, we have rotating military. You're one of our permanent military faculty, an academy professor who did not go to West Point. As I stated, you went to Boston College. What made you decide to come to West Point to teach? It was an idea planted in my head when I was in ROTC by Lieutenant Colonel Dave Nadeau, who was the professor of military science, who's the ROTC battalion commander. So when I was a senior, his rhythm was once a month, he would have a one-on-one weight room session with, with all of the, with each one of the seniors. And this was, it was a double-edged sword. He was a big barrel-chested guy. So he was, so while he's there abusing me in the weight room and I'm questioning (laughs) life decisions, he's just casually pulling the bench press bar off of me and saying, Hey, you know, it's one of the most fun assignments I had was I was a rotational military faculty in the math department at West Point. And I don't know if you know that that's an option that you can take advantage of after you complete your, your standard lieutenant assignments and your company level command. But it seems like you'd, you'd be interested in that. And if the timing works out right in your career timeline, then you should apply. And that really interested me. Yeah. So I looked into it after I recovered and could move my (laughs) arms enough to use the computer. So I looked into it and discovered he was not lying. (laughs) uh, So it stayed with me and I thought there's there's a certain amount of luck with, with timing involved in this, but I ended up landing at Fort Stewart, going to CAPS career course early, landing at Fort Stewart early, had plenty of time to complete two commands and come here. So threw my hat in the ring and, and was fortunate that the history department hired me and here I still am. What would you say to other non-West Point graduates, you know, however they got commissioned about an assignment at, at West Point? It's the best assignment I ever had, which is, is probably not surprising since being a permanent faculty member here, I threw my hat in the ring to come back. So it's the most fun I, I've had in the Army. There are several points in your career where the most important thing that you can do is is develop a new generation of officers. And the cadets that I encounter here at West Point are they make this the most fulfilling, the most single most fulfilling thing I've done in the army. They're optimistic, energetic, bright, talented, dedicated, working with them day in and day out, and working in and amongst a faculty that's full of just full of just brilliant people who are doing their level best to develop that next generation. It's, it's like no, no assignment I've seen before. And the facts, I would tell ROTC grads that the fact that you are not a West Point grad will not hold you back a bit. 
We don't have a secret handshake, but we call ourselves goofies, graduates of other fine institutions. But there are plenty of us here, and the cadets do appreciate our perspective. They are curious about, you know, what is life outside of West Point like? What are other officers from other commissioning sources? What kind? What are their backgrounds going to be like? The the not having graduated here has has not held held me back one bit. You know, and you just said something, Rory, that triggered a thought in my head. I had a I have a mentor who has laid out, you know, some very basic tenets of of what it means to be a leader. And the last one, and he reiterates it to me all the time, is make sure you're building the bench, right? You have to set the vision, you have to resource it, you have to do those things, but you have to build the bench. And I can't think of an assignment where you get to influence and impact the next generation of of army leaders at such a broad level as you, as teaching here. And as you know, it's not simply we're in the classroom educating them on whatever your particular discipline is. There's a developmental component to it. And you really will stay in connect, you know, contact with these young officers and see them go do great things. And it's very fulfilling to know that what you are doing is going to have that type of influence and impact across the Army going forward. That being said, what's the strangest thing you've learned about West Point after being stationed here? That the plebes have to brace when they go up the stairs. Yeah. I see that happening and... and I still don't understand it, but I, I acknowledge that it is a thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You've lived in some great college towns. What's what's the best? Boston, Chapel uh, Hill, or West Point? You know, it's 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 tough because I think the answer changes at what stage in life you are. That is the most un like that that you should have been a lawyer, not a historian. <laughs> Uh, that, that's a, that's not a, that's not an answer. I'll leave you there. Hey, I want to thank you, Roy, for being here with us. This has been fascinating. Thank you for all that you're doing. Like I said, I get so much joy and excitement out doing these podcasts because I get to highlight our, our incredible faculty. My only regret is I couldn't do one a day because that's how much excellence we have across our faculty. So again, thank you very much. I'd also say, please be sure to tune in to the Inside West Point Ideas That Impact podcast next month. Remember, you can find this podcast as well as the other podcast journals and books hosted or published by the West Point Press at westpointpress.com. So again, Roy, thank you. Thank you, sir. And until next time.